Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. What a privilege it was to talk to Alfredo Aragin. Please forgive me in advance for the long introduction, but it's not often that I interview such a distinguished, accomplished guest with so many awards and accolades. Born in 1935 in Morelia, Michoacan, Mexico, Alfredo became, at age nine, the youngest pupil at the Morelia School of Fine Art. At age 13, he moved to Mexico City, living there for 11 years until he came to the United States in 1959. In our talk on this episode, Alfredo tells us the incredible story of his move to Mexico City and his journey to America. Alfredo eventually moved to Seattle, where he earned BA and MFA degrees from the University of Washington. He has received numerous awards, including a Humanitarian Award by the Washington State Legislature, a Governor's Arts Award from the State of Washington, and a National Endowment for the Arts Visual Artists Fellowship Grant, among others. According to the University of Washington Press, Alfredo's canvases are tapestries that mingle diverse and interpenetrating influences and images. The traditional crafts of his native Michoacan, the lush rainforests of his homeland and of the Pacific Northwest, sacred and endangered animals, gods and totemic figures, icons like Frida Kahlo and Cesar Chavez, and motifs including masks, eyes, and abstractly patterned tiles. Professor Lado Flores has referred to Alfredo as a genuinely American painter in the real hemispheric sense of this term, an artist of magic, mystery, and revelation whose place in the history of North American art has already been secured. Alfredo Araguin has exhibited his work internationally, most recently at the Museo de Cadiz in Spain in 2015. He has exhibited solo shows at Linda Hodge's gallery in Seattle since 2001. Aragin has a long and distinguished list of accomplishments. In 1979, he was selected to represent the U.S. at the 11th International Festival of Painting in France, where he won the Palm of People Award. In 1988, in a competition that involved over 200 portfolios, Aragin won the commission to design the poster for the centennial celebration of the state of Washington. The image was his painting, Washingtonia. That same year, he was invited to design the White House Easter Egg. One of the most crowning achievements came in 1994, when the Smithsonian Institution acquired his three-panel painting entitled Sueño for inclusion in the collection of the National Museum of American Art. A year later, in 1995, Aragin received the highest recognition given by the Mexican government to the commitment of distinguished individuals who perform activities that contribute to promote Mexican culture abroad. More recently, he was invited to show his work in the Framing Memory Portraiture Now exhibition at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. One of his paintings included in this show will remain in the permanent collection of the gallery. In 2018, he collaborated with Doug Johnson for In the Shadow of the Master in Tacoma and had a solo retrospective at the Bainbridge Island Museum of Art. That same year, Doug Johnson and Lotto Flores edited and published a book entitled Alfredo Aragin's World of Wonders, Critical Perspectives. In this book are not only samples of his work over the years, but also poems, short stories, and narrative tributes to Alfredo from iconic writers such as Ray Carver 
and Tess Gallagher, two of my all-time favorite writers. In this episode, Alfredo talks about his close relationship with Ray Carver, leading up to Carver's death in 1988 and his continuing friendship with Tess Gallagher. I had the privilege of seeing some of Alfredo's paintings up close at the Marmot Art Space in Spokane recently. And while I encourage you to go online and check out his work, as with all art involving paintings on canvas, there is no substitute for seeing the work in person. So I encourage you to find Alfredo's paintings at a gallery and check them out. They are something to behold. So without further ado, or in Spanish, sin más preámbulos, please enjoy this intriguing and lively discussion with the great Alfredo Aragin. We're here with uh, Alfredo Aragin, and uh, I guess I'll start off with um, a discussion of the show in Spokane that I saw at the Marmot Art Space. Uh, I was there last night looking at your your paintings there, and um, I had seen your paintings in books because of the the book that just came out, um, Alfredo Aragin's World of Wonders. Uh, Critical Perspectives, edited by Laurel Flores and Doug Johnson, and stunning, stunning paintings and writings about you in that book. But of course, it does not do your paintings justice to see them on a page. So when I saw them at the Marmot Art Space in Spokane, um, I was I was struck by the the depth, the the 3D, there's there's two things that struck me. One, some of them almost seemed three-dimensional, um, taking a 2D image and things were just leaping off of the canvas, the, uh, the wildlife, mm-hmm. um, but also the depth of the, the image so that you, you're actually seeing far back behind the, the subjects in the paintings. And, um, and so I just wanted to, I guess, comment on how, how stunning those paintings were in person. And I recommend that anybody who is interested in seeing your work, um, go beyond the books and go outside of the web to actually see them in person. Thank you. Thank you. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how did that, how did that show in Spokane come about? Well, uh, Marshall Peterson um, uh, have already heard about me because I had an exhibition at the Museum of Northwest Art there in Spokane. He's very well connected with with uh, with with people in Spokane because he's lived there most of his life with his mother. I think she has a ranch outside the city. But uh, he was already interested and thought that I would never show there. Um, But he wanted to try it anyway. And he called me up and he says, I have this little tiny gallery and um, would you like to show there here? And I said, sure. And it blew his mind that I was ready to accept without even seeing the space, you know. And uh, so um, one of the things about that he opened the gallery was because he wants to buy one of those little mini houses uh, that they're building, you know, and, and around that area. 
And so when I had my first show there, he saw like three or four paintings and he says that made my budget for the whole year, you know. So that's why he insisted that I have another show this summer again, you know. And I agree because I wanted to help him, you know. Um, it's a big contrast from the exhibition that I just had at the um, uh, Bainbridge Island Museum of Art because they have a fantastic new museum. It's only five years old and uh, real close to the ferry, and they have all these beautiful windows that the light comes in, and it's so spacious. And I had the whole museum to myself, including the lobby, you know. So that was very impressive. Uh, the, the first night the, for the opening, I um, had like 500 people. And the last the last day of the sh before the show closed, I had 600 people there. And I brought a lot of people that usually don't go to museum, people that are very humble and uh, some of them came from all the way from Morelia. My sister came from Mexico City with a husband and everything else. Um, my idea is that when I have, a, I have probably, I am probably the the artist that have shown in the state of Washington more than anybody else. I've shown in every high school and every college and every museum. The only one that I haven't shown is the Seattle Art Museum, you know. For some reason, they haven't invited me to show there. Uh, all my friends that graduated at the University of Washington with me have had shows, but they haven't offered me. And I was really bitter and uh, around the 60s when I was drinking and stuff. And then I thought, well, maybe I can shoot a little farther, and I end up showing at the Smithsonian, you know, having two of my paintings <laughs> in their public collections. They even have an installation called The Struggle for Justice, uh, where I'm the only oil painting there. And they have relics from all the struggle that uh, of all people that since the country started there, you know. And so I'm really honored to be there. And of course, they send thousands of students every day to see the exhibits, you know, because um, Washington, D.C., you know, is an international place where people come from all over the world and they want to see the museums, you know. Well, I guess uh, take that Seattle Art Museum. Uh, they, <laughs> you got into the Smithsonian. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so how did that happen? How did your paintings wind up in the Smithsonian? Well, um, I had a, um, first of all, um, they had the, the beginning of the Mexican Museum in San Francisco. Uh, I read in the paper that, um, yes, um, they're opening a Mexican Museum in San Francisco. So I contacted the man that started the museum, Peter Rodriguez, who was an artist that always wanted to have a Mexican museum. And so he started the museum in a shoe store. So he called me up and he says, they have a left wing for Chicanos and they also have a right wing for Mexicans. Which wing do you want to show? 
I said, I have Peter, I don't know. And actually, it's fine with this. He says, well, how long have you been here? And I said, oh, like 17 years. Then you're a Chicano. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is there is also some sort of a, a, a situation into which isn't, isn't this a common thing that happens all over the world that we are the minorities and we're struggling to be recognized and fighting. But then those same people that form these groups to complain are doing the same thing, you know? Like, for instance, Cheech Marine, uh, you know who he is? From Cheech and Chong. Yes. Uh, he has been collecting Chicano art all his life. Well, since the Chicano movement started. And um, uh, so he... Uh, he loved my work. He saw it in an exhibition at the museum in Chicago, but he didn't buy any of my work for his collection because he probably felt that I am not a Chicano. You see, <laughs> this guy is not a Chicano. He comes from Mexico and he paints landscapes, you know? Right. And so anyway, um, uh, uh, when I had a show in, uh, in Albuquerque, at uh, the museum in Albuquerque, um, this man, um, Andrew Connors, the, 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 the curator of the show, he called me up and he says, Alfredo, we're having an exhibition of Cheech Marine's, uh, Chicano show, uh, but you're not in it, but don't worry about it because you're next and you're going to have the whole gallery for yourself, you know? <laughs> So anyway, that's that's how it uh, it's, uh, it, it happens. Uh, the Smithsonian uh, uh, saw that show of, of the when when they first moved the Mexican Museum moved over. Uh, I had a traveling show. The started at the Bellevue Art Museum and went around the nation. Ended up at the Smithsonian, one of the shows, and that's when they they discover my work. So they called me up and this Andrew Connors and he said, we'd like to make a visit to your place. And I said, um, wow, please do come over. And he was very humble and wonderful. And we had bean soup here and everything. And he said, can you give me some slides of your work uh, to take over to Washington? Because we 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 want to collect one of your pieces. And I said, oh, sure. And I sent them a, a painting of a triptych, very 144 inches by 72 inches. Big one. Big one. And so he called me up and he says, the director of the museum wants the big piece. I said, wow. Really, I couldn't believe it. And so um, they acquired this piece called Sueño. And it was the fourth most important acquisition. And I was I was there with O'Keefe, you know. Oh, At the same goodness. time, they were, they were collecting her. And I thought, man, that's going to really put me in the map, you know. And it did. And it did. And so... Um, and when they were celebrating me for acquiring this triptych, uh, I was sitting next to the to the to this woman, and she said, um, "I am the director of education of the Smithsonian. I want to ask you a question. 
What do you think of the what do you think of the National Portrait Gallery? And I said, well, it, it, it's 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 a little too white <laughs> and too gray and a little bit depressing. You need some color here, you know what I mean? <laughs> and she laughed and uh, two years later she called me up and she said, um, Guess what? Now I am working for the National Portrait Gallery, and I remember what you said. So he says, not only do we want to acquire one of your pieces, but we want to give you a show. And I said, wow, that's great. <laughs> so during the opening, I'm walking passing the presidents of the United States, and it's, everything's so great and dark. And I look at the end, and out of the gallery shooting all these pinks and blues and oranges and everything. They had painted the gallery in all these bright colors. And I said, oh no, they took it too literal. <laughs> <laughs> but they show me and they show uh, five other artists that were, we were all uh, minorities, you know, they represented the, uh, a, a very famous woman that is uh, Native American from New Mexico and a very wonderful black artist from New York. And so they got the idea, but they painted my <laughs> my my space with all these colors. I was the only one that was shooting the color outside the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when did Sueño make it into the Smithsonian? What year was that? Uh, that was like 2004. Wow. Yeah, 2004. And uh, yeah, I called my father from the Smithsonian and I said, I'm at the Smithsonian, Papa. And of course he knows. He's very, he, he's very well aware of what the Smithsonian is. I mean, most people around yeah. the world know that, you mm -hmm. know. So he says, you, you hit the top there, man, and all that. And it was a real nice experience. And um, uh, it keeps on giving because um, people, especially one of the reasons that um, I like the component of education in museums is because they bring all these elementary schools and all these children to see the shows and I just love that you know yeah I was uh, in Albuquerque uh, I I said to the to the curator I said you know what I want you to do I have an idea I said can you can you take a photo of my paintings two maybe two paintings and make them into line line drawing paintings to give them to the kids to color. Oh, like a coloring book. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were posters. And so when I went to the opening, there were like 300 kids outside the museum coloring these books, you oh. know, and th these, these prints, you yeah. know. It, that, that's what makes me really happy, you know. So also, um, I have also, because there are a lot of museums that do not have any money to buy my work, I've been donating my work to these museums. And that's what I have, uh, like uh, three pieces and four pieces in both Mexican museums. The museum in um, Stockton, California, I donated one to them. 
the one that it was really hard to donate was the one in Albuquerque Cultural Center because uh, uh, they called me up and he said, Senora Regine, your painting is attracting so many people from all over. And here we're very dry and your salmon, they make people feel so good. Can you donate this painting? I said, it took me eight months to paint. It's a huge <laughs> painting and you wanted me to donate it to you? Okay, I will. Uh, you can have it. You know, <laughs> eight months. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a real big pain. It's called Chihuahua because I like to give Native American names to the. Is the the uh, the Colombia is it's called Chihuahua. So I yeah. th that's what I call it. And I was there two years ago visiting my daughter. So they gave me a tour of the museum. And I'm walking, and then all of a sudden, and there is your painting, Mr. Aragon. I said, you're absolutely right. It is my painting because I never sign any documents. And the guy goes, what? <laughs> what? Just a second. And she went and called the director on Sunday. And then, you know, it was a Sunday. And so he called the director. She was over there in 20 minutes trying to do the documents here, for me to <laughs> sign away the painting because they have forgotten to give me the, 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 the deed, you know. So, so your pro what's your, your process? If you have, you're working on a painting for eight months, is that the only painting that you're working on or do you have multiple canvases up and working on those simultaneously? Yeah, no, um, not usually. Uh, sometimes because I use uh, pattern as a background and it's, uh, sometimes it puts me to sleep to repeat over and over and over. There's a one point into which I'm meditating and then passing that I'm sleeping, you know. And so... Um, that uh, the, the the reason those paint well, when you go downstairs, I'm going to show you that uh, that diptych that I'm working on. Oh, of, the orcas, the orcas, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you could see that um, that uh, process how how I have a billion little dots in there that I paint every day. You know, I mean, so it's, it's very time consuming, and I work with little brushes. Um, to do line drawing, to do the designs. Can we go down right now with the mics? And sure. you could hold on to the microphone and then I'll, um, I think that might be interesting. Okay. Okay, so we're going downstairs in Alfredo's Seattle home, undisclosed location in Seattle. Now you can see all the little dots that I have here, all, all the pixels. That, yeah. Yeah. That is, um, you know, I, I took some painting classes in college, and I, so I, I have a very cursory understanding of painting styles, and I, I wouldn't call this pointillism. 
Um, well, but, it's very close to it. Yeah, yeah. but but it, it is similar to pointillism. It looks yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. You can. Uh, everything comes. Every you know, like uh, when I was in Korea, and then I had my R and R in Japan. I was fascinating. I'm fascinated by their art and their music and everything else. And then I end up painting uh, salmon paintings with hokusai waves, you know. Yeah. Then I go to Mexico and visit Mexico, and all of a sudden the music and the atmosphere uh, it, it starts uh, because it's not it's not something that you, that 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 you say with your mind. You you don't say, oh, I'm gonna do a painting with a monkey in this jungle, and I'm gonna do this over here. It's sort of like Yusha is going to be the medium into all these things filter out and go through the brush into the canvas. Yeah. You know? And if you start thinking about it, it breaks the flow. Right. Because you're sort of in a meditative uh, state. And that's one of the reasons that uh, I have never understood or liked the idea of conceptual art because is brain art and mine is soul art. And uh, uh, when I do portraits, now I'm doing portraits of two more justices. I did the first one with, uh, with, uh, what was his name was Smith, the first black uh, justice in the state of Washington. Um, And um, I said, I said to, to because uh, Steve Gonzalez came over and and asked me. He says my son was at the palace of uh, of uh, the justices, and he says and he saw the, those portraits and said that how come we don't have people that look like us? So I'm ke- I'm here to ask you to see if you do a portrait of the of this Justice uh, Smith, and I said, "Well, you know, I do portraits of Frida, but she's dead and she doesn't complain. But to do <laughs> portraits of living people is very hard for me because of their egos, you know." Right. But anyway, um, I have my I have this idea that that if I absorb and talk to you for a while. Uh, it's going to come that something in your features or something about you made an impression, not consciously. I'm not, because if I start doing a drawing of you, it wouldn't look like you. But if I have some feature of you that is important to you, you recognize it as your portrait. Besides that, I said to you, for instance, if you wanted your portrait, I said to you, I'm not going to paint your portrait. We're going to paint your portrait. I, I want you to tell me what's important in your life. Is it a poem that that is in your mind, a movie, or what, or a childhood dream, or what? What something that comes to you that 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 is part of you, and then I use that as pattern. So, of course, the judges love his portrait because he had all of his children, all the people that he admired, all his mentors, everything wasn't there, you know. So it was, it was the, the, the background becomes part of him, you know. Yeah. And then he, 
he identifies with the painting so much because all of a sudden it's not your ego that starts saying, he painted me too old and I don't have that wrinkle over there. Yeah. It's the connection that you make with the painting that 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 is what creates an emotional connection that is really important, you know. Well, I've I've heard it described, and I forget the um the famous painter who used to paint like chairs uh-huh. and tables and things like that. Um, you know, what's the difference between painting a chair and and a picture of a chair uh-huh. that it just a snapshot. And um, someone described it as the the painter can stare at the chair for weeks before they actually capture the essence uh-huh. of the chair. Yeah. And is that kind of what you're talking about with portraits that you're really, you're really going for the essence of uh-huh. who that person is? Yeah, I, I, I did try it. Uh, I, I, I tried. That's why it will be difficult for me to do a portrait of somebody I don't know if that sends me a picture. You right. Know? But like the ones that are dead, heroes that are dead like Zapata, I get away with it because I make his song and his horse and everything else to adorn him into which people immediately identify him with all this other stuff, you know. Because after all, uh, you know, how do we know what Jesus Christ looks like? Somebody paints him blonde, somebody paints him black. It's just an illusion. But if you put a halo on anybody, then all of a sudden it has some spiritual connotation with it, you know. Yeah. So so what do we... Um, just because we're on audio here, we have no video. Um, I'm going to try to describe what I'm looking at and maybe you could help us understand it better. What you're, what you're painting here. Um, we're in the basement of, of Alfredo's home and this is his, his studio. Apparently, um, there is a, there are two canvases that are glued together. No, they're they're just, uh. They're just put, uh, clamped. Oh, they're clamped together. They're clamped. And the size of these canvases is is what? Uh, it's uh, 60 by 96 inches wide. Okay. And the, and we're looking at, I mean, this is, this is just stunning. Hopefully we can get one of these pictures on the website. Uh, but there are orca whales jumping or, you know, breaching the, the surface of the Puget Sound, um, and those are the, is that the Olympic Peninsula in the background? The Salish Sea. Okay. See, uh, I, I, uh, uh, the mountains, uh, uh, this is a sort of a silhouette of Mount Rainier, and the other mountains, they're just invented by me. Okay. Uh, I just want to create a feeling, uh, like I keep on saying, uh, if I was very accurate describing Mount Rainier, then there is nothing much to say about it. But if you are, it has some ambiguity with it, it makes makes you wonder about things. Uh, because, you know, people that look at paintings, they spend a few seconds going through the museum. They just go by, walk by, and pa- pass them. 
but with mine, they stop quite a lot because there's a lot of little ghostly things in it, a, a lot of mysteries that you cannot see. So some people sometimes come two, three times to see the show right? so they can see more, you know. And that's, and that's another thing I wanted to point out with these paintings that I saw at the Spokane Gallery and in this, this painting that's in progress right now, the Orcas painting, is there's so, there's so many layers and so much to see in it. it I, I don't know. I don't want to call it complex, but you definitely cannot absorb what is on the canvas just walking by it. I mean, there, there's a lot there to take in and, um, it's, it's just a, it's an experience for sure. Just to try to, um, appreciate everything that's on the canvas. So what we're looking at here, how many weeks into it are you? Oh, this about six weeks. Yeah. And I'm still working on it. But what, it, what is interesting is that, um, it will be kind of um, corny to think that I read the paper and the orcas are making news lately about their extinction or something. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to paint a painting of orcas, you know. But I've been painting uh, salmon and orcas for quite a while. Actually, my first painting of, of, of salmon was when uh, Ray Carver came to one of my uh, uh, openings at Foster White and uh, the first exhibition he's ever been to. And then he went to to Syracuse and a week later he called me and he said, I have cancer all over my lungs and I'm sorry that I said, I was crying. He says, no, 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 I'm coming to Seattle and I'll, I'll get... They're gonna cure me. I have a specialist, and I went to. I would go and wait for him at the hospital while he was having chemotherapy, and all of a sudden, this big, large man gets into my car and starts hugging me and says, "I wish I was fishing," and I thought, "I'm gonna give him a painting of a jungle." And then I said, no, I'm going to give him a painting of salmon. And that's my first salmon painting I did, you know. It, it, I, it's called The Hero's Journey. And it, it, it just blew his mind. When people from New York will come to interview him, he will say, sit here and meditate on this painting. And they, on top of the painting, had the, 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 the ghost fish. Oh, I love the ghost fish on top, you know. And so that's when I started painting. Uh, the, I, all of a sudden, Hokusai came to mind with a big wave and the salmon. And then I started a genre of paintings of salmon and, and the waves, which saved me completely uh, economically because then all these billionaires were collecting my salmon paintings, <laughs> but they were not collecting my jungle paintings. <laughs> so, so Ray Carver was, um, I think he died in what, 89? Yes. And so his diagnosis was about what, 88 or so? Yeah. Yeah. It was like a year. Yeah. Just, yeah. And just for, for the audience who, who may not know Ray Carver's work, he's, one of the most famous short story writers um, from 
from the 80s mm -hmm. um, and just remarkable, um, a big influence on me because I studied him. I went to the same college as Ray Carver attended and I think he may have even flunked out of, y of YVC. Um, oh, wow. Um, but I, I don't want to disparage him by saying that, but I, I think I remember hearing a rumor that he maybe didn't do so well at YVC, but he ended up writing some amazing short stories that actually made their way onto film in the uh -huh. movie Shortcuts, directed yeah. by Robert Altman. And Birdman, the yeah. latest one. Oh, yeah. 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 This was over there receiving the... Uh, was invited by uh, Alejandro Iñurrito for the Oscars and all that. So oh. she was she was in heaven in Hollywood with him, made real good friends, which they still write each other. And they asked me for the movie if I would let him have a photograph that Susie took of Tess, Ray, and I outside in the porch. And also one of the portraits I did of Ray, they did it on poster size. And we went to see the movie and I couldn't find it. And all of a sudden we had to see it again. And there it was stuck between the sofa and the dressing room of the guy, you know? <laughs> and they, they, a little portrait of, of, of the three of us way back there. You could, at the end, I, I am with my wife saying, Maybe they gave us some credits and my daughter's with me and the whole theater has left and here are the recognitions and he's going, oh, real slow. And they're also, and then thank you to Tess Gallagher and Alfredo Arreguin for blah, blah, blah. So it was really nice. In the credits for Birdman? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, I really don't think, I think that Ray would have loved Birdman. But that was a fantastic I, I don't think movie. he would have liked, um, uh, what was uh, the other one? Shortcuts. Yeah. That much. Shortcuts was, um, it was d difficult to, um, the, I think the audio on the movie was strange because that's the, just Robert R. Altman's style. He has he mics up everybody in the background, and so you hear, uh -huh. you know, the clinking yeah. of the silverware and and everything else. Um, yeah. But it was um, I still enjoyed the film. I love Robert oh, Altman I, movies. I, but... I, I I I like I like the film, but the reason that I don't is because. They made up a lot of stuff. They yeah. adulterated. Oh, the, yeah. You know, is one artist making the version of how he sees his own things. That's what I mean. Right. You know, Alman is seeing it. Hey, this is the way I see it. You yeah. Know? yeah. And he's pretty, he's pretty opinionated, Altman is. I mean, he has a vision. <laughs> yeah. Very specific vision. Uh -huh. So, so Ray Carver, Tess Gallagher, when did you meet those two? Well, Tessa, uh, uh, when she was a teenager still and going to the University of Washington, um, uh, I was a waiter at this Mexican restaurant called Campos, the first Mexican restaurant in Seattle. And she would come and said, Alfredo, um, I only have $2. Can you just give me a couple of tortillas and some beans? <laughs> And I will bring him the deluxe platter with all these extras, you know. So we became really good friends. And uh, um, she will visit me at a 
boarding house, a house called the Magic Mountain, and we became really good friends. And then she disappeared for a while, and, and then when she came back in 1977, I think, with Ray Carver to introduce me to Ray Carver, and he walked in there in the house, and um, uh, he immediately liked me because... I was getting drunk and telling him all these stories, you know, <laughs> and he had a little notebook and he was writing all this stuff. And I was feeling so important that this guy cares that much about me, you know? Yeah. And um, so, um, yeah, th that's one of the reasons that he wrote Menudo, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the short I saw story. That in the book. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, it, it was really funny because Ted says, Ray is writing a, a short story about you. I said, oh, my God, really? And I'm imagining he's going to talk about my paintings and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, uh, he, um, he, uh, he, he's writing about Menudo, you know. Uh -huh. And he, uh, uh, you know what Menudo is? Yeah, the soup. Uh, the, it's a stripe soup, right. beef stripe soup. But anyway, he called me. I call him up and I say, "Ray, I got some some of your draft. It's not Morelos. It's Morelia, Morelia." <laughs> and he goes, oh, "Okay, Alfredo Morelia. Okay." And then he calls back and I said, "This is crazy. I just read your menudo recipe. You don't put vinegar on the menudo. That's horrible, Ray." <laughs> and he says, "Oh, okay." I said, where did you get that recipe? And he says, the library. I said, well, that's horrible. And and then uh, he, I call him back and he says, Alfredo, first of all, let me tell you something. This is fiction. <laughs> <laughs> oh. There was my ego trying to correct his fiction, you know? I yeah. Mean, did you, at the time that you were hanging out with Ray and Tess, who, Tess Gallagher, by the way, for those who haven't read her work, she's, she's an, an incredible poet, very influential poet and, and writer. Um, but when you were hanging out with Tess and, and Ray, um, did you know at the time that they were going to be so impactful in, in the, um, you know, in the world of writing? Well, uh, I had well. It, it was not hard to guess that they were because um, uh, Ray had already received that uh, big award for three hundred thousand dollars. I think it was a MacArthur or yeah. award. Uh huh. Yeah, that's when he uh, his 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 buddy, best buddy uh, died in a motorcycle accident and he went over and bought himself a Mercedes Benz on his slippers and they thought he was crazy he wanted to pay cash for it <laughs> <laughs> but anyway he it, it was uh, it, I, that's what I have been so fortunate uh, as a painter because what happened in, uh, to, to convince uh, the public about uh, how to digest abstract art, they had to have these wonderful writers, you know. And so I thought, I need some great writers. And there it was, Tess Gallagher and Ray Carver, you know. Uh, and so uh, Tess wrote that 
book about uh, when she wrote about my book um it made it into a treasure you know it won an award and stuff and since then i've been meeting a lot of latino poets black poets all native american poets and i go and listen to them and stuff and uh when my grandfather as a child took me to see if they will accept me in the School of Fine Arts of Morelia. And they said, he's just a kid. We have professional artists over here. And he, and uh, uh, my, my grandfather, but he has a lot of talent. And so they let me in there for one year. And it was the most fantastic experience and because I could go into the poetry room. I could go into the dance room. It was a big colonial building. And the dances were fantastic. I mean, it, it was a world of fantasy. And so um, the idea of, of poetry already, you know, the one of the reasons that I didn't become a poet was because all of a sudden I ran to my mother and I said, they as an assignment, they want the kids to recite a poem in, fr in the yard in front of the whole school. So I want to do this poem called uh, the the one of Francis of Assisi's, uh, the one about the wolf, and it was like ten pages, you know, long. And I memorized every single line and recited to my mom, and she said, "You got it really good." So I walk into the middle of the thing, petrified, and all the school is around me. And I start reciting my poem, but it was so long that the band started playing and took the whole people out. They all followed <laughs> the band out and left me standing there. You're still reading <laughs> so it. <laughs> that's why I never became a poet, but I love poetry. Yeah. Well, you know, what a what a poet to be friends with and and what a tribute she made for you and i mean uh -huh. those the poems and the um the writings in that new book that that tess contributed it uh -huh. just um it brought tears to my eyes uh, uh. because it it's um it it shows what real friendship is uh -huh. and i think that that's uh, hard to find you know i think really, people really. are i don't know maybe it's just i'm projecting my own struggles with trying to cultivate and, and maintain friendships over the years. Uh -huh. uh, but what a bond you guys had and still have, yes. you know, uh, to, to have someone like Tess um, write such beautiful things about you and, and tribute to, to you for that book. Um, I'd like to, before we leave this room, I'd like to know if you have... Um, a philosophy or a, an approach to when you know you're done with a painting? Yeah, that's always has been a, the most difficult question for artists because sometimes I finish the painting and I put it away and all of a sudden, three months later, I'm working back on it. And it's because it's a continuum you know, it's, it's not something like you say, this is how it starts and how it ends. Uh, this is, do uh, you have enough courage to start the journey and go on it and go on it 
you know, uh, and they always say that the voyage is more important than the destination, you know. And so I could keep on working and working. Uh, sometimes if you 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 could overdo your work and become stale if if you if you just obsess with something, but it's it's just sort of like a song, you know. Uh, it gets to a point and a repetition and everything else, and then it ends up with it that leaves you still with the music inside, and that's one of the things that I like to do with my paintings is that the continuous the connection to the viewers that are seeing them because then the painting is moving in another direction, which is what I aim to do. You know, that's what, 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 uh, true art is. You, 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 you want to play the, the song again and again, and you, you, because it's fading away, you know, but, um, but there are things that are indelible in your life, you know, and, uh, my playing Tarzan in the mounds of Mexico uh, was one of the most beautiful things because I had a lot of struggles growing up, you know, as a kid, real sad childhood, and being in the forest. And and that's now what I do. I Every day I walk, uh, go take pictures out of the the beautiful animals and fauna at the lake and every place I visit, all these parks. So when I come to my studio, here I am with all that inspiration. And I don't dare turn the TV on until I'm done for right. the day. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, maybe we could um, go back upstairs and then talk uh, about your childhood because you, you mentioned... Uh, growing up in Morelia. Well, you're going to have the whole history of my life in here. Yeah, well, you know, it's... Um... It'll be very useful because uh, uh, most people, you know, this is the way I like to be interviewed because, because it's spontaneous. It's a chunk of the artist rather than mechanical questions that you have to answer to them. Right, yeah. And it doesn't have to be a chronological history, um, you know, starting when you're born and ending <laughs> at the Smithsonian or Indian, ending uh, here in your home. Um, it can be nonlinear. And that's just the way I think we process information anyway. Mm -hmm. We don't think linearly. Yes. Um, but... You uh, you were born in Morelia. I was born in Morelia uh, illegally. I'm illegal in every sense of the world and every aspect of my life. I have been illegal. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I was. Uh, 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 I, I I didn't have a father. Uh, my I grew up with my grandmother and my mother because. My mother had an affair with this incredible man that uh, was six foot tall with blue eyes in Mexico and rode a motorcycle into the bull rings and people used to make songs about him and marry a movie star in Mexico. And so all the women were, were crazy for this man and my mom was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I was born without a father and... Um, my grandmother was uh, was uh, took care of me. She actually, I consider her more my mother. 
but uh, uh, I accepted that my father, they even made a story that he died in the Second World War or something like that. And um, when uh, my mother remarried, um, when I was probably around 11 years old, uh, she married this horrible man that um, had uh, three, I have three brothers and a sister uh, from him, but he left my mother. But one of the things that happened was that changed my life was that uh, my grandfather had left me a, a 45 revolver, all decorated from the revolution. And I had a little bullet inside of it that was 38, but this was a 44 caliber. So when I will shoot it, the whole bullet will come out, you know, <laughs> and it, of course, didn't work. Right. Because it wasn't the right caliber. But this time I was with a friend of mine doing my homework and my half brothers came running in to bother us and he pulled the gun out and said, I'm going to shoot you. And he pulled the trigger and it worked. It went right through his head, you know. And uh, so my mother said, um, you got to you gotta leave because he's going to kill you. He's, he's just going to, he was a guy that, wanted to try to play for the Olympics, uh, lifting weights and throwing the disc. He had muscles everywhere, you know. He was a horrible guy. <laughs> and anyway, um, so so the, the next day I was riding on the main street of Morelli and my bicycle, and I look at my little mirror, and behind I saw there was my stepfather with his truck, and he lunch at me and I roll over and he ran all over my bicycle and then he tried to chase me but I was much faster you know I ran away and that's when I decided to move to Mexico City and how, that, how old were you then I was uh 13 and when I got to um Mexico City my um my aunt says, uh, we, we found a school for orphans in Veracruz where you could go to uh, for high school. And it's, it's, you'll be okay over there, but it's not, it's cold. And <laughs> I said, uh, well, okay. So I was ready to go. And then she, she came over the next day and she said, you know what? I call your father. And I said, my father? She said, yeah, he's very wealthy and he lives here. And I call him up and he's coming over to talk to see you. Your biological tomorrow. father. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he showed up in a big Cadillac and I got into his car with my aunt and he says, well, I don't know if he's my son or not, but I'm going to help him, you know. And uh, so he started helping me by uh, putting me in a school in Mexico City. And so I was in a lot of uh, houses uh, uh, for students and things like that, boarding houses. And then about the third year, 
she said, uh, uh, he, he, he said, um, well, I convinced my wife for you to move in with us. And man, I was in heaven. There is this big mansion with a swimming pool and three beautiful sisters and a little brother. And I'm in heaven and I'm going to school. This is like the late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. Because you were born in 35, right? Yeah. 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 And he said, then then, uh, uh, my father bought me one of those Harley Davidson motorcycles (laughs) that I could hardly live. It was 500. But every time he lived, my friends would help me lift it up again, you know. And I was in heaven. But then my older sister got the idea that she was that she was madly in love with me and all of a sudden i said oh no no this is not right and she will you know then she got so close to me that the other sisters start thinking that jealous of them because i would go to the movies and stuff and they didn't want to come and they told, finally one night my father showed up in the middle of the night with a rifle and broke the door where I was leaping and said, I'm going to kill you, you rape your sister and all this stuff. And they threw me out of the house. And I thought, I said, what? I, you know, and it, it was horrible, you know, because... Uh, then I went back to the boarding houses and everything else. And then he came over one time and he said to me, when I left my house, I was 14 and now you're 17 or so or 18. Um, I'm going to give you some money so you could start a business and you could be independent from us. And so he gave me all, all this money and I was looking around for um, some business to get into. And everybody said, you don't know anything about that. And you don't know anything about that. And then I, then I bought myself a convertible and went to Acapulco and blew out all the money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course you did. He said that he cried. And I said, but dad, that money that you gave me was, I bought this convertible where I met this American family and I took it around Mexico and they are the ones that took me to the United States. So you got rid of me really for good, <laughs> you know, with that money, that investment. It wasn't all thrown away, you yeah. know. <laughs> Well, I think and, some sometimes money can hold you back too, because then it takes away that you know that drive to do what you need to do. You know what, whatever your calling is. If you're too comfortable, you know you're not going to have that drive. Yeah, that, that's true. And well, that that was a, a, a sad thing because um, when I will visit him in Mexico the last years. He will sit down in this chair, and I said, what's going on, Dad? You look so sad. And he said, yeah, I really feel horrible. He says, Alfredo, I gave a house to each one of my children. 
I gave them trips to Europe, and I gave them money for businesses. And to you, I didn't give you anything. I said, no, 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 no. That, you gave me what I wanted. You gave me your love that to me has always been the most important thing. That's one of the reasons I quit drinking because the angst that I have and the hate that I have and the bitterness that I have, I, I mean, I had a horrible time in the army being discriminated and 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 then my father, uh, you know, no connection with him and when he threw me out of that house and... So I became a real famous drunk, you know? And uh, one time I was at the Blue Moon Tower and somebody uh, said, you're in the newspaper. I said, really? And he said, yeah, here, here's the article. And it was a little blurb that said, Alfredo Arreguin is not only a famous drunk, but he's also but he also paints. He just won an award at the Bellevue Art Museum show. <laughs> a famous drunk who happens to but, paint. <laughs> but, but, but he happens to be a painter too. <laughs> so, so when did you decide to stop drinking? Well, after when I uh, I I actually met Susie, my wife, at the Blue Moon Tavern, and I said to her, "Oh, you're." You're you're gonna be my wife. You're my darling, and and everybody said, yeah, right. I said she's going with me tonight, and everybody said, yeah, right. And so she did, <laughs> and so we end up together. And but she had to go to Europe uh, with a friend, and I kept on writing her when she was in Paris and everything else, and then I managed to gather all this money to rent a house that in those days were really exp 175 a month with one month for uh before the when you get the lease and whatever so i gather all the money to when she will she will come back she will move in with me and so she did and um so we um so when did you meet her? Uh, that was, uh, that must have been about 1974, something like that. So you were still drinking then? Yeah, I was really drinking. And then um, then the bloom, I would go to a blue moon and bring the party to my house. So everybody, party at Alfredo, <laughs> party at Alfredo. So everybody will end up at my house partying and, and one day this guy tried to get into my um into my daughter's room and I said uh that's it I'm not going to I'm not going to have a daughter with a drunk father I'm not I'm going to quit drinking and smoking and Susie said both I said yeah both I'm going to cuz they were scaring me that it was dangerous for me to smoked two packs of cigarettes in front of all this turpentine and all this smoking in front of all these paintings and stuff, you know, that had all that orders. So uh, one time Susie said that she got, got at three o'clock in the morning, I was sitting with three packs of cigarettes in my hand and the ashtray was full of butts. 
trying to make up for a week that I hadn't smoked, you know. So I said, I, I have to quit drinking before I quit smoking because once I'm drinking, ah, who cares if I die? You know, I don't care. Right. And so I started, I quit drinking and then the hardest thing was to quit smoking, you know, because it's so addictive, but I did it. And I think that that uh, is what uh, I am so prolific with my paintings because all that energy that I used to spend in taverns and doing all that stuff has converted to creative energy. So Now, your wife is Susan Lytle? Yes. And, uh -huh. and so she's an artist as well. She's an artist, yeah. We share the same studio downstairs. And um, when she was uh, in Paris, was she... Um, was she painting over in Paris at that no, time? No, they actually were invited by this friend of the of the other girl to go there. He was very wealthy and uh, gave the money to go to Paris. And the other woman uh, had never been there, so she asked Susie if she could go with her. Right. And uh, I said, oh, man, I'm going to lose her. But uh, I kept on writing, and uh, eventually we got together and... Uh, uh, we got married at uh, this, uh, uh, Susie's uh, sister was a lawyer that um, uh, participated in that film that I guess was made in Harvard called The, Shoot it, the Shooting of Big Man mm. that they used for education purposes about that uh, shooting in Yesler Tavern and the Yesler building over here. And she married this guy that uh, was the head of the lawyers, uh, you know, the public defenders. Mm -hmm. um, so they bought this big, beautiful mansion-like household house, and that's where we got married by a judge that was their neighbors. Yeah. And, and your daughter, is she an artist as well? She's also an artist and a dancer. Um, she was a belly dancer, and, um, and then she became more modernistic dancing. And now she's totally immersed in her garden. She's doing gardening, and she's interested in plants. And she got married to uh, to this Mexican guy that um, uh, came here like I did. Uh, uh, some family support him to come over, and he decided to stay too because he had problems with his family in Mexico. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's really nice that we have him real close to our home and they visit and stuff like that. So, so um, you have managed, it sounds like, to be um, painting and making a living at art making mm -hmm. art for a very very long time she's very lucky yeah and so um what what year did you start painting um in a way that you were actually able to make a living at it mm. well i went to university and got a master's degree in 69 and after that i started having shows right away at Poly Freelander and all these places. And I was also 
having doing teaching like uh, for the parks department and Queen Anne. And then when I didn't have any jobs, I was getting um, uh, workers relief for a few weeks. And then they they started with the CETA program uh, this, uh, that that had to do with, with granting artists money for their survival, and I applied to that and got a couple of those, and then I applied for the National Endowment for the Arts, which people say you'll never get it. You don't even know how to write a. Uh, proposal or something like that. And I got it twice, nice. twice, National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. Uh, and then they discovered me and um, uh, there was a man called David Schaff, a curator for the, in Washington DC and an art critic. And he asked the Mexican Museum to send them slides because he wanted to choose a, a Mexican-American to represent the United States in the Caña Sur Mer uh, International Festival of Painting in Caña Sur Mer, France. And he chose me as be the third, two Americans and me to represent the United States. And I won the Palm of the People Award. And... Um, so that, uh, he connected me with a law firm, the law firm that was defending Nixon, and they loved my work on their brand new multi-million dollar building in Washington, and they bought like six of my paintings for the building, you know. So I started making, uh, uh, we didn't need that much money to survive. We never have had really big things, except buying paint and paying the rent and whatever. And uh, then I started selling and uh, I was represented by several galleries, Poly Freelander, Foster White Gallery, and I started selling work. So since then I have been very safe. When when the, the thing that, that happened was when um, I, I, we save all this money, I save like $40,000 for to buy a house. And they show me this house here and I loved it. Uh, Susie didn't like it because everything was painted green. This was Mr. Picardo's house, the, the men that started the Picardo farms across the street and that donated to the city and all of that. And he lived in this house. So I, w I always tell my Mexican friends, I live in the house of the boss. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I had this horrible insomnia thinking, what if I don't sell my paintings for a month or two? What They're going to take our house. I, I, you know, I was so worried about it. So when the Smithsonian bought my painting the National Museum of American Art, they send me the check and I say, Susie, let's go to the bank and pay for the house. <laughs> and we were the happiest, we're celebrating that now we don't have, we own the house now, you know. Oh, great. So so the Smithsonian, when they accept one of your paintings, they actually pay for it. You don't have to donate it to the museum. No, there's, uh, 
both. Uh, the, of course, everybody would like to be part of the collection of the Smithsonian. So a lot of people offer uh, their work, um, but the National Museum of American Art purchased it, purchased the painting, and the National Portrait Gallery, I donated the painting. Yeah. So how how much of your time is spent um, doing art, you know, the, the, uh, the process of, you know, thinking about the painting, painting um, versus the business of art and the hustle, I would imagine that artists have to go through to sell their paintings and make a living. Is, uh -huh. do you, have you thought about that? Um, how much time you have to spend doing the, probably the the less desirable aspect of the art world, which is the business part? Well, uh, the, the painting is the easiest part and also the most natural part. That's what you do. The other stuff I've been helped because now I have a gallery that represents me, that gives me a show every two years. And so I get all the publicity and all the, all that stuff. And she sells my work. She, which, which gallery is this? Uh, it's uh, Linda Hodges Gallery. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, they've been established. They actually moved into a gallery that I was already in uh, from these people that decided to open a gallery in Seattle from Mexico City and they didn't take care of business. They were giving tours to all the governors and politicians to Mexico and abandoned the gallery and they went broke. So then Polly Freelander moved into that same space. I've been with her for, for a few years now. Um, and then I have a lot of shows and I'm, I'm on Facebook. Uh, once in a while I sell work through Facebook. Oh, nice. Um, there are, People interested in uh, the nicest thing about Facebook is that uh, I get teachers from all over the world teaching my art to their kids. So they call me up and, when are you going to finish the painting? The kids are waiting, you know, and I get invited to the high schools now want to do reproductions of my art for their schools and elementary schools. I just went to elementary school um, where my daughter went to uh, Bryant uh, Elementary School and the teacher said, we're studying your painting that is at the Smithsonian and um, could you come and talk to the students? And I said, oh, okay, I'll come. And she said, um, and so I prepare myself with my, I, I got a f all my paintings to show the kids and they had the projector in the library. And when the, the kids, the, the students came, there were these little creatures, tiny little <laughs> ones. Hello, you know, and I'm going, what am I gonna do? And I'm, telling them about my ghosts and the paintings and how I love animals and how my dog died and now the crows follow me around the park. And at the end of the 
session, the teacher said, do you have any questions? And the little boy gets up. Can you teach us how to paint goals, Mr. Arlequin? <laughs> and then the little girl, what did your doggy died of? <laughs> but well, anyway, it's been really wonderful to um, to be able to connect with uh, young people and then old people like me, they come to my shows um uh, and uh, especially at museum shows, and um, I have my paintings in um, in hospitals and retirement homes and things to inspire people. Yeah, and it makes me really happy that um, uh, that art is not a way to be famous and rich, but it's a way to connect not only through your paintings, but spiritually uh, you make connections with people and real good friends. Yeah. So the, um, w what is a day in the life of Alfredo Aragin look like, um, when you're painting and, uh, you know, like just starting when you get up in the morning and what your routine is and how much time you actually spend painting. Well, I'm running out of uh, uh, not creative energy, but energy in general. I walk in the morning. Uh, every morning I get up at, uh, I wake up around 5.30 or 6. And then I come down and then we have breakfast and then I go to the park and I take my camera. I used to take my dog with me. Now I just take my camera and take pictures and... Um, enjoy the day the morning and then i come home and i paint until four or five um and then i go to bed uh i have to take care of a lot of business so a couple of hours at night i do a lot of the things that have to do with uh, interviews and i have to plan for another exhibition and when are they meeting me and uh there are people interested in Europe and my uh, images to do jigsaw puzzles. So now my jigsaw puzzles are being distributed all over Europe. Oh, yeah. I mean, looking at your, your paintings, it makes a lot of sense that they would want mm -hmm. to do jigsaw puzzles because yeah. they're, they're very geometric. And, um, and as I've, I've read about your work, you know, sort of the, the convergence of math and uh -huh. art, you know, with those patterns. And then I, uh, they just told me that now they just bought one of my designs in Turkey for a jigsaw puzzle. And the United States just published one of my jigs. They've got the idea, the Sculpomogranate cards, that they're going to do a a puzzle and they want me to use one of my Frida's. So now they just published one of my Frida's that is selling like hotcakes around the United States. And what happens is that even in education, when you go get educated and then you get a graduate degree you have all these barriers and taboos that have to do, oh, you cannot be commercial, you cannot do t-shirts, or you cannot do jigsaw puzzles, or you cannot do posters, or you cannot do, you know. And 
they don't understand that this is the old way to think about things and you have to evolve. Yeah. And there are older people that are stepping into the future with all their stuff that they have learned to pass it on and then it gets translated into different mediums and new ideas that young people start picking up on it. Right. And that's one of the reasons that I don't care. Um, I really rejoice the fact that somebody in Poland or in Switzerland is doing my jigsaw puzzle, you know? Well, it's being seen. I mean, you're, be, that's right. Your, your yeah. work is being seen by people who probably would not be seen it otherwise. Right. So that's, that's great. Um, and, you know, I, I know what you're talking about, though, that there's sort of an elitism about, you know, uh, frowning upon selling out, you know, whether it's a, a book being made into a movie uh -huh. or, you know, a painting being made into a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I could see the, you know, the artists that want to hold on to, you know, the old school uh, yeah. way of thinking that they would they would look down upon that. But I think it's great that you're getting it into other mediums. That's awesome. You, you can just imagine how I think that Frida Kahlo would have been very happy with with, with her imagery being all around the world, you know? Well, what's your connection to Frida Kahlo? Well, it's just that uh, I never met her. Uh, she was the age of my father, was born in the same year, 1906. But uh, uh, I connect to her because of my mother wanted to be an artist. My mother suffered a lot. And uh, she um, uh, had a horrible life, uh, not making it because of all these uh, chauvinistic situations in Mexico into which women were always the household you that you don't even have a chance to get out there. I mean, my father married this movie star and uh, she ended up divorcing her because she wanted to pursue her career as a movie star and he didn't like that she was going to, she imagined that she was going to sleep with all these other people and didn't want her to be in that kind of business, but she decided that she wanted her freedom and left them, you know, yeah. they, they broke up. But that's my connection to Frida. Also, I always wanted to have a woman that was a mestiza, which she was. What do you mean by that? Mestiza uh, between being half German and half Mexican. And that's what mostly Mexicans are now, they're mestizos because uh, Cortez and La Malinche had the first baby together. So she was, she's the modern, modern mother of Mexico, you know, the union between a white and a, and an Indian is a mestizo. Okay. Know? And so um, she represents Mexico, but she also represents the European part that Mexicans don't like to recognize in one way, but want to presume that they are. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're always fighting themselves. Look how white I am, and yet I hate them, you know? <laughs> yeah, because she shows up a lot in your paintings, and they're all they're all unique and, and different. Um, but it is a, it's sort of a majestic, um, it, it's a majestic uh, muse to have. It, it's the feminine, um, the feminine idea of, um, of that exists everywhere in nature, the jungle and mother nature is feminine, you know? So that's one of the reasons that I wanted sort of a symbol of that because when you endure a hard life uh, because of what they the system assumes you are and not give you the proper rights as everybody else um, out of that uh, pain and struggle uh, comes beautiful art beautiful expression and beautiful music and songs. Yeah. That's why I think so many artists, if you, you know, examine their lives, you know, you see a lot of trauma, um, in, in, from their childhood, uh, pain and suffering. And out of that comes, um, an expression of that suffering through their art that is beautiful. You know, yeah, somehow. it filters through. Yeah, and that's what you were talking about before uh, about the idea that uh, uh, when you give everything to your kids, uh, and when you assume that they are your friends rather than you, the authorities, then you're in real trouble. Right. And they are in real trouble because they eventually are going to blame you for it instead of thanking you. Yeah. You know, they, they create a resentment, you know. Yeah. And um, um, Vito de la Cruz, um, who you know and introduced us, um, his, one of his wife's sayings, Nati, she says, it's not my job to make my kid's life easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, so Vito tells him when I, when I talk about raising my kids, he, he brings that up, you know, <laughs> once, once uh, every few months, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good, you know, uh, way to approach parenting, I think, you know? Yeah, it is really a, a delicate situation because you, you, um, they, you know, like they might have a crazy idea of what they want to be, but you have to let them try it. Yeah. You know, you cannot say, oh, you cannot be an artist or a musician. You, you, well, we, we come from people that are engineers or business people or something. It's ridiculous. If you don't feel it, you become slave or something that you think naturally is not you. And you're not going to have a good life having to go to work. <laughs> so so what, what advice would you give to young people who maybe have a calling? They feel like maybe um, a career in the arts is for them, but their parents are pretty rigid with what their expectations are vocationally. You're going to go to college. You're going to, 
get a real job. Um, what what advice you, would you have for young people facing that um, dilemma? Well, uh, you know, like uh, uh, if uh, a lot of a lot of kids uh, very early um, appear to have already uh, something that uh, they're passionate about. But other kids, they, like I didn't for a long time. Uh, and uh, until I discover art. But don't become an artist because you think you're going to be famous and because you think that you're going to make, make money. Uh, and don't be an educator if you don't have a passion to be patient with your the kids you're going to teach. If you have that passion, then the other stuff is a periphery of that. And like, like if you become, if you have a passion for painting or music or something, the money will come to you when you are start doing great stuff. But if you're searching the money around what you what what you think that uh, your profession is going to give you, and you're disappointed, you blame the art, not yourself, for making a bad choice about right. what to expect. You know. So it sounds like you you start with the passion, and then you focus on the craft, and then if you focus enough on the craft and you get good enough, that everything else will flow from that. Uh, organically, yeah. Well, there is a point in, uh, in 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 your life into which art is not like a profession, but is you. You go outside, and your eyes are directing you to things that are interesting. Uh, it's not like you are going to look for a bird; is that the bird appears to you, and and. Uh, Music, uh, you can learn technique. You can learn how you can go to the best schools and learn all the technique about painting. If you don't have the other part, which is the most important part, then you become a good designer for uh, commercial art, probably will be great. But if you want to suffer somehow and filter all that suffering and express it with art, then you're going to see that there's a lot of beauty and that comes out of all that pain, you know. It filters through. And that's one of the reasons that uh, I could quit smoking and drinking is because the other the the spiritual part of it was always there. I didn't need the drinking and the smoking dope or drugs. It's always there. It's just that you don't know how to access it because your brain is always doing stuff to you. It's worrying you, uh, it's making you feel this way or the other way. So you have to quiet your brain that's what Picasso said. It would be great to paint without a head, you know. <laughs> and uh, well, yeah, there's a lot well, of noise in their head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or like the Buddhist thing, the, you have to pacify the monkeys, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the monkeys in your brain are always fooling around with you. Um, yeah, uh, 
And it's not much to uh, as as you know when 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 you give advice is so, something so much more direct. But um, friendshipness, kindness, uh, the closeness to to things that are not ego oriented will give you the ability to reach your soul and being to express yourself in beautiful ways, you know. Because that's where the source of everything comes from that's beautiful, you know. All the simple things that are important and beautiful in life are not the other stuff that we think that gets old in a week. You get a brand new car and it's over in a week or two, you start putting mud in it and stuff. But the other stuff is always there. And so when you meet a friend, it's an aura of feeling so good because it takes you to times that were wonderful. And that's, that's it's not like when I'm start thinking about uh, next time I'm going to do a, a painting of salmon, I'm not thinking of painting the last painting, but I'm already thinking of new ideas that were impregnated through me by visiting all these places, seeing more art, even looking at the internet at designs from Japanese rugs or things like that. They all become part of part of you, but not in a not in a conscious way. Yeah. If you try to imagine it and draw, you can't. But if you relax and you allow that to come through you, you are amazed. That's what magic is all about. Right. It, 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 it transcends from the inside of you and with your hand into something and it blows your mind. Yeah, and Be it's even though it was- Because it's so natural. And, and it sounds like even though you are, you're looking at something you're you're not copying, you're not plagiarizing, but you're being inspired, and you're creating something completely original mm -hmm. um, through observing, you know, the the beauty around you, and you just have to be ready to really see the you know look for and and see the beauty around you and have it you know filter through your your own lens. And it's 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 basically. Uh, this is what I think. Basically, what happens is that when you're a child, everything is so incredibly intense and miraculous. Miraculous. The marvels trigger you to look through worlds. You see these little bubbles, the water, the imagination, the, the richness of colors the scene of people dancing and gesturing and all this stuff is so fantastic. And then the kids start going to school and learning that, no, you made a mistake. That's not a salmon, that's a carp. And oh, no, this is this and that. So the brain takes over about, ooh, I made a mistake. That wasn't, instead of seeing the fish as a fish, uh, and that's that's one of the things that I started doing at first when I was painting. I was I was putting tigers in Latin America and kangaroos in Africa and whatever. 
because it was the kid's expression. When a kid draws, he's not drawing accuracy or data or anything else. It's coming to where I used to try to come all the time, where that inspiration comes from. It comes directly to them because they don't have all that other stuff that we built through the years that 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 locks us up into little cells of things. Right, you know? the baggage of... I oh. was right about yeah. that, and you were wrong about that, and you get mad about this, and it's so silly, you know? It's, a, it's the, lab, the labels and compartments and the rules that uh-huh. sounds like that kind of corrupt um, corrupt us as adults and and make us less tuned into um, art. And then you create fear because these images are in your brain. Like when I see those Mexicans leaping on a, on, on a cactus with a sombrero, they're lazy people. I don't want to hire them because all they do is take siestas, you know? These are the hardest working people in the world. Oh my God, they got two, three jobs every day. <laughs> and so, you know, so, so it, takes, it takes all the, I used to love to give all these tours to this, at the Albuquerque Museum. I had all these board of trust, all these business people that came over and they all had these faces of, what am I doing here and uh, whatever, you know? And I start talking to them and talking about the paintings and we're moving around and pretty soon they're smiling and they're laughing and I'm gotten to them. They're becoming children again. Now I can play with them. Now we could play together. Yeah. Because now you left all that suit of inhibitions and all this stuff at the door and now you're coming to play you know so it's 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 a real wonderful situation that um uh we are so much the whole people of the whole world we're so united and uh, by our genes and our ourselves and where we came from from primitive years to now but we have made ourselves different by differentiating each other. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden we're creating conflict because there are enemies, you know? And I talked to, I, I went to Portugal and I don't know Portuguese and I had all these conversations with people. I could understand part of it and part of it with our actions, we're having fun and laughing. We're children again. Uh, you take those veils, you know, and you approach people as friends rather than I am this and what are the directions of that and they resent you because you don't respect them, all this stuff, you know. And I love to travel because I go and sit down with, I, when I was in Korea, I was out there eating uh, horrible dog food sandwiches with the natives up in the mountains. And it was beautiful. They were out there playing 
this wonderful music and it is a beautiful country, all the mounds and they're all having these picnics and they have all these little wrappings of delicious food, except for the dog meat, you know. <laughs> but I ate it and tasted it and everything. So I didn't want to offend them, you know. <laughs> well, Alfredo, do you think we uh, we covered everything you wanted I to think talk you, about today? You, you probably have an Encyclopedia Britannica to fill up with all this stuff. <laughs> well, I'm sure, you know, with as, as much work as you, you've done and the life that you've lived that we probably just scratched the surface. But I want to thank you for sitting down with me in your home and having me in your home today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. I, I right away, made, uh, when you walk in the door, I knew you were going to be my friend. So I felt real relaxed to talk to you. And things, uh, it's just like having coffee with a friend. Things, I love to chat like that, you know. Yeah, that's, well, you know, sharing your life in this way um, was a real privilege to hear. And I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate um, all the time that you spent to to share your story. So thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.